Book of Jeremiah, chapter 13 this evening. Sunday night we go through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, and we come now to Jeremiah chapter 13. If you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles with Bibles right now. Just wave to them and they'll put one in your hand. And if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord uh, to you this evening. We remember that Jeremiah is preaching to the southern kingdom of Judah uh, prior to them going into captivity because of their idolatry and their wickedness. Uh, ultimately to the Babylonians. He would minister for a period of somewhere between 40 and 50 years, and there is uh, no recorded convert, no recorded uh, fruit, uh, long-term fruit related to his ministry among uh, Judah, the people of Judah, God's people even. This is not talking about pagans and the unsaved and so forth. These were his own people, God's people that he was ministering to. And Jeremiah's ministry was basically uh, to speak for God while he oversaw uh, kind of the uh, the, the decline and the destruction of the southern kingdom of Judah. So that's tremendous insight to us. I hope that um, in, you know, my lifetime and before the Lord returns to rapture us, that perhaps we'll get one more, uh, at least one more great revival br- breakout in California, in the United States, and in the world. And uh, it's the only answer to the problems that we have. And, um, and so uh, Jeremiah teaches us a lot about standing for God uh, while a world is uh, heading toward judgment headlong in its rebellion against God. Chapter 13. Uh, in chapter 13, we, uh, the Lord begins to use Jeremiah, and he's going to do this multiple times in his ministry, where he's going to have him perform a particular symbolic act, kind of an object lesson, in order to get the attention uh, of the people of Judah. They weren't listening to God's Word. It was like, okay, God's talking again. And so he would have him kind of go through this drama a little bit, and then they would look at Jeremiah and say, what in the world is he doing? It would garner their attention, and then God would speak to them from that lesson what it was that he was wanting uh, to speak to them. So it was a, a means of gaining their attention, piquing their attention, and then uh, Uh, speaking to them about what they needed to do. And thus said the Lord to me, Jeremiah said, go and get yourself a linen sash and put it around your waist, but do not put it in water. So a linen sash would be like, no, they wore robes in those days. There were no Levi's or anything. And so they wore the robes and then they would have this belt or this sash that they would wear around that would keep the robe closed, of course, but it was also a decorative item. It was you know, the same way that here we have a shirt and pants for guys that we put on, and women do too, but you have uh, dresses on top of that, but uh, in blouses. So, uh, but in those days, one of the things you do to kind of dress yourself up would be the robe that you would wear, but if you wanted to kind of, uh, you know, add something a little more flair or a little more beauty to it, you would, you would wear, uh, you'd always wear a sash or a belt but if you wanted to add a little color and so forth, uh, you would use a sash. And so he's told uh, to get himself one of these, put it around his waist, but he was not to put it uh, into water. He was to wear it uh, brand new. And so I got a sash according to the word of the Lord, and I put it around my waist, and everybody would have noticed it. Everybody would have looked and said, "Uh, Jeremiah's got a new sash. Uh, There might be a song somewhere in there. I don't know. I just thought to myself, 
so they would all notice that what's Jeremiah doing? This is something new in him. He's not usually given to, you know, being this dapper and all. So they, uh, they would have known that he had done this. And the word then came to him a second time saying, take the sash that you have acquired which is around your waist, and arise and go to the Euphrates. The Euphrates was a river in Babylon. It was the country, the nation that Judah was ultimately going to go into captivity to. He was to go to the Euphrates there in Babylon, and then he was to hide that sash uh, in the hole in the rock uh, there by the Euphrates. This would have involved a 700-mile uh, round trip, uh, uh, you know, round trip kind of distance for him. So he has this new sash, and they notice it. He then goes to Babylon. He sticks it into kind of the mud in the side of the Euphrates River, and then he comes back. And the Lord then, uh, and so he went and he did as the Lord commanded him to do, verse 5. And so it, now it came to pass after many days that the Lord said to me, now arise, go to the Euphrates, and take from there the sash which I commanded you to hide there, where you can imagine um, it's a mess. It's completely spoiled. Who would want to wear it? It's been ruined. And that's the whole uh, idea. And so I went uh, to the Euphrates, and I dug, and I took the sash from its place where I had hidden it, and there it was. There was the sash ruined. It was profitable for nothing. And what God was speaking, two things really, to the children of Israel through this imagery was the idea, number one, that they were intended as His people to bring beauty and to bring honor and glory and majesty to the Lord. Their holy life, their obedient life was intended to draw attention to their God for all of the pagan nations around them to look and say, wow, what kind of a God is able to produce that quality of a human life? None of our gods are able to do that, and then God would be glorified uh, by that. And so uh, the sash represented uh, what they were to be uh, to God, they were to be some. Their lives were to be one as a nation that adorned God, that gave uh, God the attention that He was due uh, in the world. Uh, the sash was also as it was ruined by their rebellion, by their idolatry. It, it was ruined there in the Euphrates River, and it was a symbol of the fact that sin always ruins our witness for God. It always destroys. Sin always destroys. And the most valuable thing that it destroys is not even our individual personal lives, though sin works to destroy that, James chapter 1. But the most precious thing that we possess as Christians is our witness for the Lord. And sin destroys that witness, and it destroys our Christian life. It destroys uh, all of that. It utterly ruins it. And so here as he would come back, he'd be wearing this ruins sash, and they would be saying to him, what in the world, why are you wearing that ruined sash? It was an outward communication to them that the sin that you are committing against God is ruining you as surely, and your witness, as surely as Euphrates River uh, ruined this physical sash. And then the Lord, word of the Lord came to me saying, Thus says the Lord, in this manner I will ruin the pride of Judah and the great uh, pride 
of uh, Jerusalem. And so uh, behind all sin is pride among God's people. And so this is attacking uh, their pride, this evil people who refuse to hear my words and follow the dictates of their own heart and walk after other gods to serve them and worship them shall be just as this sash which is profitable for nothing. And so again, sin ruins everything and the most valuable thing for us as Christians that it ruins is our witness for God. It makes it profitable for nothing. For as a sash clings to the waist of a man, so I have caused the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah to cling to me, says the Lord, that they may uh, become my people for renown for praise and for glory, but they would not hear. So this was what they were intended to bring God through their uh, obedient lives, but they spoiled it uh, with their sin. And then the Lord went on and to give him another kind of uh, something to, you know, an object lesson to, to perform or a symbolic action to live out with a spiritual meaning. He said, therefore, you shall speak to uh, them this word. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, every bottle shall be filled with wine. And so, you know, they would have listened to that and said, Jeremiah has a very firm grasp of the obvious. That's why you had bottles in those days to fill them with wine. And they will certainly say to you, God said in anticipation of their response, do we not certainly know that every bottle will be filled with wine? Remember the false prophets were teaching them in this day, no judgment is coming, uh, there is no consequence for your sin or your wickedness and so forth. It's going to continue to be your life is going to continue to be marked by prosperity, and all wine was a mark of that kind of prosperity. And so, uh, no doubt the prophets were saying every bottle is going to be filled with wine and so forth. But then God takes it a little bit further. Then you shall say, verse 13, to them, thus says the Lord, behold, I will fill the inhabitants of this land, even the kings who sit on David's throne, the priests, the prophets, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem with drunkenness. And the idea is becoming drunk on their pride, drunk on their sin. And then the Lord said, I will dash them one against the other, speaking of the judgment that he would bring against them. Even the fathers and the sons together, says the Lord, I will not pity nor spare nor have mercy, but will destroy them. And so the Lord comes in and speaks about the fact that he is going to break them. And one of the things that the Lord can do in any of our lives, I mean, the distance between the finite and the infinite is, is massive. And the, in terms of God's power and our power and so forth, when God wants to break our pride, when he wants to break us in any way, it's absolutely effortless for him uh, to do so. They were acting like they could win this war or this battle against God. Nobody ever wins a battle against God. Nobody. Not the saved, not the unsaved, nobody does. Because to fight a war against God is always to fight against perfect love, against perfect wisdom, against perfect justice and righteousness and holiness. And so always to lose a war against God, if I'm uh, unwise enough to wage it against him, is to win. And that's why God always makes sure that he wins in these situations within our life. But God could bring that 
nation down in an instant. And he, and he declared to them one day uh, he was going to uh, humble and bring judgment upon Judah, and it would be as easy as breaking glass bottles uh, with a, a kid with a twenty-two rifle. I mean, it'd be just nothing uh, to it. So the Lord then continues in verse 15 to call on them to repent. Here, he said, and give ear. Do not be proud. And of course, pride is at the core of all sin. And uh, the central uh, letter in pride is I. The central letter in sin is I. It always been, begins with the exaltation of myself, my will over uh, the will of God. And do not be proud, for the Lord has spoken. Give glory to the Lord your God before he causes darkness and before your feet stumble on the dark mountains. And while you are looking for light, he turns it into the shadow of death and makes it a dense darkness. Now, I don't know how many of you are like hikers and you go up into the Sierras and so forth and, and do those kind of things, but every once in a while we'll uh, read something in the newspaper, even those of us who are not hikers, where somebody gets out there and they lose uh, track of how much light is left in the day. And they're out in the middle of nowhere and they see that light starting to go away and they realize they're not going to be able to notice landmarks and get themselves to safety. And it is a, what, and I've never been in that place, but I can put myself in the place of someone like that. And uh, you can imagine the panic that it puts you into, uh, that the light is departing. I'm going to be in, a, in just a very short period of time completely encompassed in darkness. And, and you imagine the panic as they see how much light they have left and the desperation to get to safety. And what the Lord is speaking to Judah is they ought to recognize that they were in the same place. They were frittering away the opportunity to repent before God, and the light was going down. The opportunity to repent was uh, uh, disappearing on them, and they should, should have been in a panic. They should have been desperate to repent while there was still an opportunity to repent um, before the panic uh, set in, but they weren't wise enough to do it. Again, it's the blindness uh, of sin, the blindness of pride, and uh, so the Lord said, but you will not hear it. My soul will weep in secret for your pride. My eyes will weep bitterly and run down with tears uh, because the Lord's flock has been taken uh, captive. And so uh, here is the, the, uh, the brokenheartedness of Jeremiah. He weeps in secret for their pride and the price they're going to pay for it. The tears again, he is the weeping prophet, running uh, eyes, weeping bitterly, running down with tears because of the captivity and, uh, that was going to come their way. So again, he's, he's in the middle of a country that is slowly but surely, as a group, committing suicide. Uh, they are, uh, it's, it's so needless. I don't know how many of you have uh, loved ones in your life where you watch them some of them can confess to know the Lord, others of them don't know the Lord, but you watch them slowly 
killing themselves. And you see how unnecessary it is. It breaks your heart. You need the Lord. You have to turn to the Lord. What will it take to get through to you, uh, to turn to Him and so forth? And it's a very, very difficult position uh, to be in. It's miserable to be the person that's in, uh, in the pride and in the sin, but very, very hard for someone like Jeremiah. Uh, for us, we trust related to our own hearts where we look at it and we see, you know, what God would do if he was given half a chance, but he's not given half a chance. And so, not easy to be a prophet. And, uh, and here, Jeremiah looks and says, what a shame. It breaks my heart because of, you know, what, what the, the pride is producing and all of it so avoidable. The word pride in the New Testament it carries the idea of uh, to see myself above. So when I exhibit pride toward another person, it is always when I see myself better than that person intrinsically. You may be better than me at certain things and worse than me at certain things and then vice versa, but it is where I have a sense of superiority over another person. I see myself as better than, uh, than them. And that is a, a horrible expression of pride. It's one that the Lord is always working to uh, root out in our lives. And I have a hunch he'll, until, you know, the rapture or until he takes us to be with him, he'll deal with that issue within our life. But the highest form of pride is the pride that is exhibited on the part of man toward God. When I see myself above him and above his commandments, and uh, one of the great uh, marks of pride where I see myself as greater than God is when I disregard his commandments and, uh, and replace them with my own ideas about how I ought to live and, and so forth. And so Jeremiah looks at all of this, it breaks his heart, and pride, of course, is it's just the most destructive uh, kind of sin. The, and it's at the core of, of all sin, the heart of all sin. One of the uh, interesting things about pride and, what, and probably that makes it the most dangerous of all sins is that the first thing that pride does in a person's life is it, uh, it, uh, it, it incapacitates our ability to recognize it in our life. So we become too proud to recognize our pride, and then we're off, ready to drive off of a cliff. And this is why the Word of God is so important to us, to speak to us outside of our pride, put, our, uh, you know, put it before our eyes so we recognize it, and then we can uh, turn away from it. But all disobedience against God is an expression of my pride. I'm smarter than him. I know better than him in this situation, and, uh, or I don't care about his will. I'm going to do whatever I want to do. The Lord then goes on and he speaks about uh, this, this pride, not only that it leads to darkness and so forth, but it also leads to captivity as he speaks to, and all pride leads to captivity. He speaks to the king, uh, probably uh, King Jehoiachin, and to the queen mother. Je king Jehoiachin's mother was still alive, and when the mother of the king was still alive, she was known as the queen mother. And this is toward the end of before Judah goes into captivity. Say to the king... And to the queen mother, humble yourselves and sit down. 
for your rule shall collapse in the crown of your glory. The cities of the south shall be uh, shut up. And these are talking about the Negev, the, northern, the southern part uh, of Judah. These cities are going to be shut up. They're going to be ready for war. In other words, the Babylonian invasion is going to go not only to Jerusalem, but all the way through the land. And no one shall open them. Judah shall be carried away captive, all of it. It shall be wholly uh, carried away captive. Now, you would think they would listen to that and would think, well, what in the world do we have to do to avoid an end like this? But they didn't. They weren't willing to do so. And so the Lord spoke to them and said, lift up your eyes and see those who come from the north, Babylon and its invasion. Uh, where is the flock that was given to you, your beautiful sheep? Uh, uh, what will you say when he, that is God, punishes you? For you have taught them to be chieftains, to be head over you. Uh, will not pangs seize you like a woman in labor? And so the fear is going to come upon the king and uh, the queen uh, mother, the leadership uh, of the country, and it's going to come upon them in the same, gripping uh, them in the same way uh, that birth pangs grip a woman in, in labor. So imagine, I mean, those of you who have had uh, women that have had children, you understand the intensity of that. Uh, those of us who are, are fathers and maybe saw it uh, firsthand right there in the delivery room and so forth, uh, you know, we think we have some appreciation, at least from that distance. We would never say uh, we have a knowledge by experience in any kind of way, but imagine having a fear that's so great that when those contractions hit, what happens? It's all about the contractions, right? That's all there is. <laughs> Whatever the deal is, you know, the Lamaze classes and all of this kind of stuff, just to get through them. One pang after another of fear when they would get uh, in, invaded. In other words, the fear would be completely uncontrollable. And if you say in your heart, why have these things come upon me? And so God anticipates the fact that when the judgment would come, they'd just like play innocent. Why in the world are we being judged, God? Why are you, you know, doing this to us? And the Lord's response is, for the greatness of your iniquity, your skirts have been uh, uncovered, your heels made bare. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard its spots? And then may you also do good who are accustomed to do evil. In other words, they had been so long involved in sin and, the, and, and habitual sin that they had no more ability at this point to change themselves than for an Ethiopian to change his skin color or for a leopard to change his spots. Only God could change them. Again, this speaks to us of the power of sin. It always takes us into bondage, and it takes us into a bondage ultimately if we play with sin that the only one who can then free us from the captivity that we put ourselves in is God himself. But thankfully, God is able to do that, and he is willing to do that, but they were not willing to turn to him. And God was the only answer to their problem, but they still continued uh, to reject him. It's just the world's worst combination that is going 
going on uh, in their lives and in their nation, and yet it, it continued. And therefore I shall scatter them like stubble that passes away by the wind of the wilderness uh, in, in going into captivity. This is your lot, the portion of your measures from me, says the Lord, because you have forgotten me and trusted in falsehood. And therefore I, for I will uncover your skirts over your face. I'll pull your skirt up over your head that your shame may appear. I have seen your adulteries and your lustful names, the lewdness of your harlotry, your abominations on the hills and in the fields. Woe to you, O Jerusalem. Will you, uh, will you still not be made clean? And so the, uh, the uh, Judah was involved in the worship of the false gods. Uh, much of the worship of the false gods involved sexual immorality. So they were guilty of two different kinds of adultery uh, because they were the wife of uh, Jehovah in the imagery of the Old Testament. They're giving themselves to idolatry, made them spiritual adulterers against the Lord, and then they were also uh, uh, committing uh, actual physical adultery and fornication within the land. They were guilty of both of them. The Bible says, be sure the sin, your sin will find you out. God warns, he warns, he warns, he warns, he warns, he warns, and then one day we get outed. And one day, when we do get outed in that way, then there's tremendous shame associated with that. And because they wouldn't turn away, God was forced uh, to expose them uh, openly related to their sin. God is so patient related to our sin. Every single one of us as Christians in this room, we know that. We know that he could expose us every time we do sin, every time we have a wrong thought, every time we do the wrong thing, and he doesn't do it. And then sometimes where we get into a pattern for some period of time of involving ourselves and dabbling and playing with a particular sin, he still doesn't out us. He doesn't expose us. He's so gracious. He keeps it as private as he can. But in all of that period of time, he's warning, he's warning, he's warning, he's warning, he's convicting, he's calling us uh, to turn away. And if we ultimately do end up getting exposed publicly, it only, it's only because he warned us such a, for such a long period of time and we disregarded his warnings. I will say personally in my own life, the only time God has, he has busted me publicly related to some kind of a sin, I couldn't plead injustice against him or that he was being unfair to me, is God is my witness. And as you are a witness to the same truth, he warned and he warned and he warned, and it was just like, this is no big deal, this is no big deal, I'm a busy man, can't you see that, God? And God says, all right, <laughs> no, you're not as busy as you think you are, and I'll slow you down. But, but here's this thing with the Lord. The Lord, he, he works so patiently, he's so long-suffering, but there does come this place, and I'm not talking about our sins necessarily being like this or what they may be like this, but ultimately he will, something will slip out of our mouth, something will slip out of our lives, and then there it is, as ugly as anybody would want to see it in front of everybody, and we look and say, man, God was warning me for a long time. I can't complain uh, to him against that. So we come into chapter 14. Uh, it, it, chapters 14 through 16 is a 
in-depth kind of description of the coming Babylonian invasion. And uh, and chapter 14 begins with uh, a prophecy that God gives to the land through Jeremiah uh, concerning uh, a drought. And so Jeremiah here prophesies a severe drought that is going to uh, come upon the land. The word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah concerning the droughts. Uh, Judah mourns and her gates languish. Now, a drought is never a good thing, is it? We've just been through, uh, what, four years or something of a drought in California, and what are we, 186% of normal this year. Thank you, Lord, for providing the rain. And um, by the way, I I read where they they don't know how to measure the amount of snow that's in the Sierras, but I haven't been. I've been trying to catch Daryl Starn or one of the farmers in the fellowship and say, all right, where do I find out about the, the groundwater table? That's what I don't want to stop praying for anything until that starts to come up for our wells in the Central Valley. Listen, I'm looking out for you farmers around here praying. I'm not going to give up on this, on this stuff. And so, you know, we want that. But here we've, we've had this, this break in, you know, in terms of rain. In the Middle East, the drought was an absolute catastrophe because of how uh, valuable water is, how scarce it is. And as the Bible teaches, water is life. You cannot live without water. And uh, so God is going to bring this drought upon the land in order to get their attention. And God, not every drought is from God, but God can use droughts to get the attention of a nation or a state or whatever it might be to turn from their wickedness. I don't think that, that this rain came in. I think it's an answer to prayer, but I don't think that uh, this drought broke because in some kind of a uh, uh, terrific way that California repented of its sin and its wickedness and it, as it exports it to the rest of the world, I think God just loves farmers and he loves people to eat and he looks at regular people who prayed to him and in his grace he answered uh, and answered the prayer. And so, you know, the value here of water, it doesn't matter how wealthy a nation is, and Judah was very wealthy at this time. God has a lot of ways to break a nation to where money means nothing compared to a glass of water or, uh, you know, an acre of water for uh, the farms or whatever it might be. And so Judah is mourning here under, uh, under the... Uh, the drought, her gates languish, they mourn for the land, the cry of Jerusalem has gone up related to water, their nobles, it affects every class of people as we'll see here, the nobles have sent out their lads for water and uh, they went to the cisterns and that a cistern of water, that was a rich man's source of water and even they found no water. They returned with their vessels empty, not half full, empty, and they were ashamed and confounded, and they covered their heads. And the covering of their heads is the idea that they were unwilling to repent of their sin, even in the face of a drought uh, this serious. And because the ground is parched, now he starts to uh, talk about the impact of this upon uh, the farmers in the land, not, not the nobles, but the farmers. Because the ground is parched, for there was no rain in the land, the plowmen were ashamed. And 
they covered their heads as well. And not only were people impacted, but of course the animal kingdom and, and nature was impacted, of course, by a drought caused here by the sin of man. Yes, the deer also gave birth in the field, but left the newborn uh, full there because there was no grass. I mean, that's that's no water. The wild donkeys uh, stood in the desolate heights, and here they are. You can see them up on some kind of a high point, and their nose is in the air, and they're sniffing for any hint at all of any water that they could use the last bit of their energy to go and find, and uh, their eyes failed because there was no grass. In other words, they then, that was their final act, and, and they, uh, they then died. Jeremiah's um, uh, response here uh, to all of this that was going to come, as God prophesied, is, O Lord, uh, though our iniquities testify against us, do it for your name's sake, for our backslidings are many, we have sinned against you. And so the idea is, God, keep on doing whatever you got to do to bring repentance or to cause their, them to turn around. You're completely just in what you're doing. How many of us pray for people that we love and we care about in our life? And as much as it kills us to pray it, to say, Lord, what they're going through is just. They must not be allowed to win and continue on the path of self-destruction that they're on, much less what eternity they're going to end up, continue to raise the heat until they turn. And this is what Jeremiah is saying, Lord, these judgments of yours are uh, completely uh, righteous. And then he called on the Lord uh, not to forget them in the middle of the judgment, not to give up on them completely. Oh, the hope of Israel, he gives that title to the Lord, his Savior in time of trouble. Why would you be like a stranger in the land or like a traveler who turns aside to tarry for a night? God, we need you to camp down right in the land. We don't want you to be like a tourist that comes in, rents a room for seven days, and then is on your way. Why should you be like a man astonished, like a mighty one who cannot save, yet you, O Lord, are in our midst, and we are called by your name. Uh, do not uh, leave us. And so uh, the Lord uh, hadn't, obviously, he hadn't abandoned them. And what the Lord was doing is a funny thing, really, how this works, because, you know, sometimes in our life, it's, it's an interesting insight, Sometimes in our life, when we hit a circumstance and we want to cry out to God, God, you've abandoned me. Where are you, you know? Why don't you keep your promises? And then sometimes if we're living a disobedient life to the Lord, he hasn't abandoned us at all. He's quite active in our lives. Uh, we're wanting him to uh, honor all of the commandments in his word uh, that are the blessings related to obedience. And God says, I can't do that at the moment, but I will do the next best thing. I'll keep my word in terms of the judgment that comes with disobeying me. And so, you know, they look at it and they think God has abandoned us, but his presence, even in his chastening, was very, very uh, 
uh, was an evidence of the fact that he was, he was quite uh, involved. It is, it, it's, a, it's, an, it's a good way to look at things sometimes when a person is like Judah, backslidden, and God has failed me. God won't keep his word. Why doesn't he keep his word to me? Oh, no, he's keeping his word to you. You're just on the wrong side of his word. Thus says the Lord to this people, uh, verse uh, 10. Thus they have, have uh, loved to wander. Uh, they have not restrained their feet. Therefore, the Lord does not accept them. And you notice that word thus, and then you notice that word therefore. In other words, the pickle the people were in and they were complaining about, it wasn't God's fault. It was their fault. God takes no pleasure in judging his people or chastening his people uh, in this way. He would have loved to have had them uh, repent. And, uh, and then Jeremiah speaks about the fact that uh, concerning the consequences of, of, you know, what they've done here. He will, uh, latter part of verse 10, he will remember their iniquity now and punish their uh, sins. And then the Lord said to me, to Jeremiah, do not pray for this people uh, for their good. Uh, sometimes, you know, there's that passage in uh, the pastoral epistles that talks about uh, praying for our uh, governing officials. And there have been times where, um, you know, we've had uh, people in positions of power where you go, uh, Lord, I'd like to pray for them, but it'll be a short prayer. Um, help them repent. Make them repent. Well, you know, the only thing you can kind of pray for them is that they they would, uh, they would repent. And so uh, the Lord doesn't say that Jeremiah should completely cease praying for them. He says, just don't pray uh, for their good. Don't pray for me to bless them when they've put themselves in this uh, unblessable uh, situation. And when they fast, I will not hear their cry. And when they offer burnt offering, and a burnt offering was a, an offering of consecration, Lord, my life is all yours. It's completely yours because that offering was completely consumed upon uh, the altar. All of these offerings and sacrifices were going on but there was no connection with what uh, they were intended to represent in the heart of the person offering them, the grain offering, God, everything that I own is yours and for your glory and so forth. All of this was going on, but God said, I will not accept them, but I will consume them by the sword and by famine and by uh, pestilence. And so this uh, terrible uh, um, uh, trinity of war is elicit here, uh, the sword and famine and pestilence. And then I said, here's Jeremiah, uh, his response uh, to the Lord, Ah, Lord God, behold, the prophets say to the people, they're saying to the nation, you shall not see the sword, nor shall you have famine, but I will give you assured peace in this place. And so the false prophets were bringing this message. Again, never ever believe a message of comfort or a message of blessing if it is being spoken into your life or into my life when I'm living a life of willful disobedience to God. It's a false prophet 
that doesn't tell me you need to repent so you can be on the right side of God's promises. Well, the false prophets were saying, it doesn't matter what kind of a life you live or your disobedience to God and so forth, how you're treating God, uh, you're going to have peace, you're not going to have a sword, there's not going to be famine. None of this stuff that Jeremiah is saying is, is going to come true. And so Jeremiah says, Lord, the people, he kind of making an excuse for the people. The people are in this condition because the prophets are giving them false prophecies. And the Lord then said to me, the prophets, they do. They prophesy lies in my name. And that's the worst lie a person can ever give. And that is to declare something on behalf of God that did not come from God at all. God said, I have not sent them commanded them, nor spoken to them, they prophesy to you a false vision, divination, a worthless thing, a deceit of their own heart, a lie that they have fashioned within their heart. And therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who prophesy in my name, who I did, whom I did not send, and who say, sword and famine shall not be in this land. By sword and famine, those prophets shall be consumed. And so the Lord speaks to Jeremiah and says, yes, the false prophets are responsible for what they've done to this nation, and I will judge them. But the people are also responsible for their part in all of this. And notice that's what he goes into in verse 16. And the people to whom they prophesy shall be cast out in the streets of Jerusalem because of the famine and the sword. They will have no one to bury them, uh, them to bury them, them nor their wives, their sons nor their daughters, for I will pour their wickedness out uh, upon uh, them. And so here uh, Jeremiah is told that the prophets, they will be judged for uh, their false prophecies and, and so forth, but the people are responsible for having believed the false prophecies. Why? They had access to the Word of God. They knew better. We believe what we want to believe. That's just how it works in life. When we believe something that's even a lie, even gossip, we believe it because we want to believe that. We, have, we're, we are responsible. That's why the Bible says even uh, for the people, even for us as Christians, not a leader maybe in the body of Christ, that we are to test all things by the Word of God and then hold fast to what is good. We will never be able to one day in judgment say, you know, uh, Pastor Damien said such and such, or some other guy was saying this, or some other lady was saying this, and so forth, and blame them for me continuing in a life of disobedience to God because I can turn to the Bible myself and find out whether it's true, and I'm responsible to do that. And if somebody is comforting me and consoling me in my sin and encourage me to continue that, and God's going to continue to bless me, then I have a responsibility to recognize that they are a false prophet and get out from under their influence. So there was no uh, passing uh, the buck here. We are all of us personally responsible for who we choose to follow 
who and what we choose to believe because each of us has the freedom to test it uh, by uh, the Word of God. So we're responsible uh, if we get led astray. And then Jeremiah, his great sorrow as he hears this, therefore you shall say uh, this word uh, to them, uh, let my... uh, let my eyes flow with tears uh, night and day, and let them not cease. For the virgin daughter of my people, he has broken with a mighty stroke, with a very severe uh, blow. If I go out to the field, then behold, Jeremiah says, I leave the city walls, go out into the field. Behold, here are those slain with a sword. If I re-enter the city, then behold those who are sick from the famine associated with the siege. Yes, both prophet and priest uh, go about in a land uh, in, that they do not know. Even uh, these, the prophets and the priests, will uh, go uh, into uh, captivity. And then uh, God, because he can only take so much bad news for uh, you know, any length of time, he then uh, kind of segues into the day that Judah will repent of her sin and God will be able to restore uh, them. Have you utterly rejected Judah? Uh, the question is asked of God. Has your soul loathed Zion? Why have you stricken us so that there is no healing for us? Uh, We looked for peace, but there was no good, and for a time of healing, and there was trouble. God, have we gone too far? Have we gone too far in our lives here now and uh, that there is no hope for us uh, at all? And the day would come, but they would be in captivity in Babylon before they would ask that question. Well, better to ask it later uh, than never. And so they would say, Lord, are you through with us? Are you done with us? Is there, is, have we gone too far? Do you, or do you still want to be involved in our lives? And that would be a future concern of theirs. It wasn't at the moment. And then in verse 20, uh, the future would include their confession of sin. We acknowledge, O Lord, our wickedness and the iniquity of our fathers, for we have sinned against you. And do not abhor us for your name's sake. And do not disgrace the throne of your glory. Remember, do not break your covenant with us. Lord, deal with us according to your grace and your nature, not according to what we deserved. And are there any among the idols of the nations that can cause uh, rain? Or uh, can the heavens give showers? And so now here they are in the Babylonian captivity. They reject all of their idols and the gods that they had worshipped that were unable uh, to give rain or to give showers. They, the light goes on for them. Are you not he, O Lord our God, and therefore we will wait for you uh, since, uh, since you have made all these things, chapter 15. And uh, uh, then the Lord said to Jeremiah, even if Moses and Samuel stood before me, my mind would not be favorable toward these people. Now, Moses and Samuel were two of the greatest intercessors in the history of the Jews. By the time they couldn't make an impact upon a situation of rebellion among the Jews, then there was just virtually no hope at all. You remember in terms of Moses as an intercessor, he's up on Mount Sinai and he is uh, getting the Ten Commandments, 
kind of busy, down in the camp, Aaron, you know, everybody's saying, where's this Moses guy? He's gone all these days and everything, and, and uh, let's party, you know. So um, Aaron comes, and, and he says, all right, give me all your earrings and the gold and everything, and they fashion this golden calf and all, and they begin to dance around it and, you know, half naked and partying and the whole thing and everything, and God speaks to Moses and says, you need to get down there and deal with your people. Nobody wanted to claim the Jews at this particular point. Moses said, they're not my people, they're your people. So there's this thing going on. And Moses comes down, and when he sees what they're doing, he is mortified. And he realizes, you know, God is about to, you know, really take care of these people, wipe them out, and start something new with Moses. Moses intercedes for the people, and God turns from just a horrible scene of among his people, turns from that judgment now, and then uh, begins to, uh, and, and, and doesn't meet it out upon them. And it was all due to the intercession of Moses, cra- praying in alignment with the heart of God. Now, Samuel, you remember him when the children of Israel uh, didn't want to have a prophet over them anymore. They wanted a king like all of the other nations. We want a king like all of the other nations. We don't like this prophet, somebody hearing God. We want someone we can see and vote for and look and touch and, and this kind of thing. And it displeased God and it displeased Samuel. And the Lord uh, let his displeasure be known to uh, Israel at that time by sending in kind of a freak thunderstorm that destroyed uh, the wheat crop and all. And the people uh, became very, very fearful. They recognized they had gone against God. They were on the wrong side of God and all. And they cried out to uh, Samuel uh, to intercede for them and to pray uh, for them and uh, that God would not forsake them. And Samuel said to them, Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you, but I will teach you the good and right way. And so here you have Moses and Samuel at very low spots in the, in the history of Israel uh, who had uh, secured the repentance of the nation. And God is telling Jeremiah, that he's not going to enjoy their success at all. The spirit of rebellion that is upon Judah at this point in time is even worse uh, than these other situations that Moses and uh, Samuel uh, faced. Again, uh, you know, it gives you a a sense for uh, how far gone they were. Cast them out of my sight and let them go forth. And it shall be if they say to you, where should we go? Then you shall tell them, thus says the Lord, such as are for death to death and such as are to the, for the sword to the sword and such as are for famine to the famine and such as are for the captivity. They'll survive the war and the famine and go into Bab- Babylonian uh, captivity. Without repentance, only judgment would result, the Lord was speaking. And I will appoint over them four forms of destruction says the Lord, the sword to slay, the dogs to drag, the birds of the heavens, and the beasts of the earth to devour and to destroy. And in other words, there would, people would die, but there would be no decent burial. I mean, I just think about people that I love in life. Imagine, uh, you know, for someone like me, you can personalize it yourself, but uh, the knowledge that my wife's body was dead in a field somewhere, unburied and being eaten by dogs. 
or my mother's body or my children's uh, body. It was a horrible thing for a Jew on, on any level for a Jew's body not to end up being buried. And yet God is saying, this is what is coming. This is what is coming. Even this would not turn them away from their sin. I mean, by the time God poured out his judgment, you can't say he didn't warn them every way you could say it. And you say, yes, I understand. I think I've heard every way God can say it, and we're only in chapter 15. Uh, I will hand them over to trouble to all of the kingdoms of the earth because of Manasseh, uh, the son of Hezekiah, king of Judah, for what he did in Jerusalem. And under King uh, Manasseh, uh, the children of Judah were even sacrificing their children to the god Molech. I mean, this is like, talk about just gone, but that's what they were doing. The interesting thing about Manasseh, and we don't have time to get into it tonight, but Manasseh repented at the very end of his life. It's one of the most beautiful, amazing, not, it's almost a thief on the cross picture in the Scripture this guy was just a monster, an absolute demonic monster. And yet there came a point at the end of his life where he repented and he turned. He didn't have much life left, but he used that small block of time that he had left now to do everything in his power to do good and to do right uh, within the nation. But the people, they never joined him uh, in that. It's never too late to repent and then do what we can with the rest uh, of our lives. But they, they had no problem with Manasseh and as a king. They followed him as a king, though they didn't follow him in his repentance. And, of course, uh, if, if I love sin, then I love rulers who um, condone sin because then it makes me not feel guilt in, in following the sin. It's interesting in terms of even in our own country. We look at who we elect and so forth, not necessarily talking about recent elections or whatever, but uh, you look in general in terms of what we, uh, who we elect. And, and when you look at the morality, you look at the spirituality uh, of the people that we elect, it's a, it's a very good idea of uh, the nation as a whole saying, I don't want anyone in that position that's going to bring conviction into my life uh, related to sin. I want that man or woman to be at least as bad as I am morally and hopefully a little bit worse. And so he, God goes on and speaks in verse 5 of the fact that no one will lament the judgment that comes out on, upon uh, Judah, for who will have pity on you, O Jerusalem, or who will bemoan you, uh, or who will turn aside to ask how you are doing? You have forsaken me, says the Lord. You have gone backward, and therefore I will stretch out my hand against you and destroy you. I am weary of relenting. So here is God relenting, relenting, warning, 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 warning. And here even the infinite God is becoming uh, weary in uh, uh, waiting for uh, uh, holding off the judgment. I will winnow them with a winnowing fan in the gates of the land. I will bereave them of children. I will destroy my people since they do not, not cannot, do not return from their ways. Their widows will be increased to me more than the sand of the seas. I will bring against them, against the mother of the young men, a plunderer at noonday, 
and I will cause anguish and terror to fall on them uh, suddenly. And you notice at the end of uh, verse 7 there, I will, I will, middle of verse 8, I will. And the, the, uh, the problem, what Judah was up against, was God. And uh, a wonderful saying is, is when God is your problem, only God is your solution. And God is their problem uh, right now, and they were only going to solve their problems by getting things right uh, with him. And so the widows would be increased. One of the, the worst, worst things about war, even in a righteous war, is to then see uh, as the armies would come back in the ancient world and the wives would then look for their husband, whether he survived the battle or not, and then to find out that he didn't and watch what that would do to the woman, a heartbreaking uh, uh, scene. And how much worse here is that would happen in something that could have been so easily uh, avoided. Uh, the, uh, the, she, he talks about it in the sense of mother, the mother of young uh, men uh, dying in the battle, the, 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 the heartbreak it would bring to mothers. He goes on to speak of uh, the mother who languishes. She's born seven sons, and they've died in the battle, and she lives long enough to receive uh, the news, and then she breathes her last. One of the great marks of security, they didn't have social security in those days, the marks of security, I'm going to be okay, my future is taken care of, is that you had children. And specifically, if you had a son or two, if you had seven sons, it was like, I'm good, I'm taken care of until the day that I die. And, and yet, here was a judgment that was going to come in and wipe out even all of that. Her son has gone down while it was yet day. She has been ashamed and confounded, and the remnant of them I will destroy with a sword before their enemies, uh, says uh, the Lord. And then Jeremiah lamented that he has to witness all of this, that he has to endure uh, all of this. He says, woe is me, my mother. He's talking to his mom, who's probably deceased at this point in time, maybe not. Woe is me, my mother, that you've borne me. Why did you ever have a baby? I wish I'd never been born. Now, you know, sometimes you can get uh, somebody who's kind of mature in life and they've been, you know, asked to, uh, uh, you know, take the dishes off of the dining table. I wish I'd never been born. Slave drivers, these parents of mine. But, you know, when it's not used as hyperbole, uh, here is Jeremiah legitimately. Things have become so hard in his life that he wishes he had never been born. And some of you have uh, felt that. I certainly have at times in my life. And he describes his situation, a man of strife and a man of contention to the whole earth. Lord, I'm forced to watch the judgment that's coming and nobody uh, ha wants anything to do with me. I'm forced. They're all having parties. They're all telling everyone that everything's going to be okay. I'm the one that's confronting them and contending them with, with them day after day. That takes a lot out of you. And I have neither lent for interest nor have men lent to me for interest. And yet every one of them curses me. I don't deserve 
how people are treating me in this nation, but they're treating this, me this way because I've been faithful to what you have called me to do. But it's weighing on him. It's really, really hard on, uh, on him what it is that he's, he's, uh, he's dealing with here, and he vents it out, uh, you know, uh, to the Lord. You know, he's a man. He had feelings just like anybody else. He wants people to like him. He wants to, uh, you know have a nice latte at Starbucks and not sit in the corner all by himself and everybody's whispering about Jeremiah and his soiled sash in the corner. I mean, it, he was paying a price to walk with God. And, uh, and, and here every once in a while in his ministry, this breaks forth and, and comes out and he uh, communicates it uh, to the Lord. And the Lord then uh, speaks to him and says uh, to him that, you know, the Lord promises to take care of him. Verse 11, surely it will be well with your remnant. Surely I will cause the enemy to intercede with you. When all of this happens, Babylon is going to treat you differently in the time of adversity and in the time of affliction. Can anyone break iron, uh, the northern iron and bronze, and the finest iron in that day in battle came from uh, the north, and that was the iron that was used in the weaponry uh, of Babylon. They were coming not only in uh, greater numbers, but they were coming against uh, Judah with a greater weaponry. And uh, so the Lord uh, speaks to Jeremiah, I'm going to take uh, care of you. Then in verse 12, he continues his message of judgment to Judah. Can anyone break uh, iron, the northern iron and the bronze, your wealth and your treasures? I will give us uh, a plunder without price. I'm going to give away all of the riches of Judah. I'm not going to ask anything for it. I'm not going to ask for pennies on the dollar. I'm just going to give all of it uh, away because of your sin from one end of the land to the other, and I will make you cross over with your enemies into a land, speaking of their captivity, which you do not know, for a fire is kindled in my anger, which, uh, which uh, shall burn uh, upon uh, you. And so the Lord uh, continues to, you know, speak of the judgment that was uh, to come. Now, the, Jeremiah, beginning in verse 15, he enters into a very, very interesting conversation with God that I think most of us will recognize and understand uh, when we come to it uh, next time. Next Sunday night will be our Acts 2.42 and uh, the partaking of communion and so forth. And the week after, we'll pick up our study in verse 15 of chapter 15. There's a lot in this passage, and I don't want to just read through it in order to uh, finish on time. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Fathers, we look at the book of Jeremiah and we see judgment and judgment and judgment and judgment and judgment all the way through, the warnings and the warnings and the warnings, and it looks like to us in a kind of a surface reading of it that it's all about judgment, but we recognize that really all of it is about grace and the grace that you showed to them to warn and to warn and to warn and to warn, not for a day and not for a week and not for a month 
and not for a year and not even for a decade, but to do it for between 40 and 50 years. And then finally, to bring the judgment upon them for their own sake and their own uh, survival, Lord, as they had lost sight of the fact that this wasn't just about their lives, but that they needed to remain a distinct people because you were yet to bring the Messiah into the world uh, through their loins. And Father, we thank you tonight as we leave our study this evening for your warnings in our life. We thank you for how quick you are to warn us and to convict us of our sin, to warn us against making it a pattern, Lord, how um, personal you make it, how secret you keep things between us and you and bringing us to uh, repentance and not exposing us and shaming us in the way that you otherwise uh, might, Lord. And we thank you for your grace in all of it and, and for your voice in our life, that work of your Holy Spirit. And Father, we pray and ask that you use this passage tonight in the Scriptures to cut away even uh, so much as a thread in our lives of having a connection in any way with any sin or any rebellion against you, but to walk free from it and to walk in the fullness of uh, the blessing side of all of your commandments and all of your promises. We choose that tonight, Lord, under the influence of this uh, prophecy of Jeremiah, and we thank you for the privilege of being able to choose just that. Thank you for the life, Lord, that you have led us out of before we became Christians and the glory of the life that you have led us into. We acknowledge tonight that even what we enjoy today is to see but through a glass darkly, that one day it's all going to give way to a face-to-face -face relationship with you and the fullness of the glory of heaven, Lord. Thank you for how good you have been to us in our Savior. From your Father's heart, we bless you. We pray that you would anoint us tonight, anoint us for the coming week, not to be a spoiled sash, Lord, but to live with joy and peace and love and obedience and that our lives might bring glory and honor to you in this same world, Lord, that Jeremiah lived in only in our generation. And we ask all of these things in Jesus' name, amen.